You're listening to the Soul Career Podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from people who've taken a risk to discover careers that fill them with purpose and make them come alive. I'm your host, Lysandra Ricketts, and I lead Soul Career, a coaching company that helps professionals, executives, and entrepreneurs to find and live their life's work and to lead authentically. So if you love this episode, let us know. Send us a message on Instagram at Soul Career. Now for the episode. Thanks for joining us at Soul Career. I'm Lysandra Ricketts, and today my guest is David Smith. David is a Paralympic gold medalist from Scotland, and he has this incredible story of overcoming significant challenges to continue pursuing his soul career as an athlete. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Lissandra, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's always uh, nice to be in sunnier climates than the UK, so um, it's (laughs) a a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, today you are recovering from the surgery that you had at the end of 2018. You were preparing to go to the World Championships and the Paralympics as a cyclist, and then you got this awful news. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so it's a pretty... uh, it's almost where to start. In 2018, I was uh, diagnosed for the fourth time uh, with, a, with a spinal cord tumor that's in my neck, C4 to C6 area, so right in, in this area here. And uh, I was actually first, it's, it's quite poignant that we're into 2020 at the moment because I was actually first diagnosed at the start of the last decade in 2010. And the whole decade, I, I basically battled with tumors and sport and surgeries and rehabilitation. I think in that decade, I learned to walk four times just in that one decade. So I, now that we've started the new decade, I'm, I'm certainly setting intentions and sort of positive energy around not having any surgeries or any tumors. Um, <laughs> but yes, in, in 2018, I was, uh, I'd just come off the world championships and I was racing about to go to Canada to race in Canada. And I had a, a, a scan, I have scans every six months. And the scan of that scan basically showed that the, the tumor had, had grown back and surgery in 2016 didn't go to plan and uh, left me paralyzed down one side of my body. So to to have this news again that the tumor was growing back after such an horrendous time in 2016, it was, uh, it was almost straight into a, a place of denial. I, I almost didn't want to deal with this again. Uh, the surgeon who had caused the I guess the paralysis, he had, he had retired. So I was under the hands of a new surgeon who I didn't really have faith in, uh, certainly not to cut your neck open and go into your spinal cord where you could potentially die. Uh, so it's, you're, you're asking a lot of trust from somebody. So uh, I had that scan, I jumped on a, on a plane to Canada, went and raced and whilst in Canada, um, I had one more challenge to do before going for the surgery and that, and that was to cycle across the Alps, which was 740 kilometers in seven days over wow. sort of 17 mountain peaks, which I'm sure we might delve into mm-hmm. later on. Uh, and then it was, then I had to find a surgeon, which was, uh, you know, how do you do that? You know, who do you trust? So it was, it was a pretty big, uh, big time in my life. And you know, you, you never really know. It's one of these decisions that if you if you make the wrong choice, you could die. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a huge consequences in this, but almost the, the circumstances are what they are. Uh, the only thing that you really have proper control over is is your uh, emotions during that time. Right. And it is a real real test on your on your emotional mind. Uh, over the last ten years, my my subconscious has obviously been bombarded with tumors 
spinal strokes, rehabilitation. So the the programming in there is is not it's not one of positive reinforcement, and certainly from the twenty sixteen surgery my subconscious brain was telling me to run. Uh, we, we don't want to go through this again. Yeah. I was spent over a, pretty much a year in hospital and in a wheelchair and into walks. I didn't want to go through that again. So in, I had a month, basically. They, they scanned me again and it showed that the tumour had got so big in October 2018 that it was, it was literally crushing my whole spinal cord. Wow. So in that point... I uh, managed to arrange a few telephone consultations with the Mayo Clinic, with MD Anderson, with Sloan Kettering in America, just to see how America pro would approach this sort of tumour. And I remember the, the surgeon from the Mayo Clinic phoned me and he said, um, can you send me through a picture of you? Mm. And so I sent him a photo on my bike from the ride across the Alps. And he's like, no, I need, I need a recent photo. And I said, that, that's a recent picture. It's only a few weeks ago. And he's like, and that's your scan? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh my God. He's like, I've got patients here right now with a similar sort of thing and they can't walk. Wow. They're, they're lying in a bed fighting for their life. And you're telling me you've just cycled across the Alps. Right. So let me just summarize some of what you said so far. In 2010 was your first diagnosis. Yeah. 2016, you did your first surgery. No, and so I had, I had a surgery. This is where it gets a little bit complicated because <laughs> I've had so many surgeries. Yeah. I, I get confused. So. In 2010, I was diagnosed and had my first surgery. Yeah. I ended okay. up having two surgeries in 2010, one for a tumor and then one to decompress a blood clot. I was then re-diagnosed in 2014 and went through another surgery in 2014. Wow. I was then re-diagnosed at the end of 2015 and went through a surgery in 2016. And then I was re-diagnosed. that was the surgery that, that was paralyzed the surgery, That was the surgery that paralyzed me. Yeah. Okay. And then 2018, you were re-diagnosed again. I was re-diagnosed in 2018. Um, and the, the frustrating thing for me is the hospital that I was under the care of, they actually seen the tumor growing back in 2017, but they, they didn't tell me. Wow. Um, so it was, all, it was basically as quick as they were cutting out. It was growing it back. Was, it was growing back. And this is a spinal tumor. Yeah. So, and then you did your last surgery at the end of 2018, and that recovery has taken quite some time to where you're still recovering from that now. Yeah, yeah. It's it was a, it was a big surgery because uh, the tumor was obviously so big, and the thing with any with any cancer or any tumor, the early diagnosis is key. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's so important to be in tune with your body. Right. And it's almost. You know, we always we speak a lot about self-awareness nowadays and, and a lot of people think, well, what, what is self-awareness? And it is that mind-body connection. Yes. And, and it's so, so important, not just for performance, but actually as a diagnostic. Because your body is very, very smart and it sends you signals long before the problem becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the more in tune we are with our mind and our body and our spirituality, we can actually pick up on the body's messages. It's constantly sending messages. Yes. Back in 2009, when I was working in New York, crazy hours, I felt that if I stayed in that environment, I would have gotten really sick. Yeah. And so I decided to leave and come back to Jamaica because of that. Yeah. I could, my body was saying, this is not healthy for you. Yeah, because your body's telling it, tell it, it's, exactly. it's telling you. Yeah. Right. So through all of these surgeries and diagnoses and challenges, you continue to pursue your career as an athlete. So tell me about when did you first know 
that becoming an athlete was your sole career? And how do you continue pursuing it in the face of so many medical challenges? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I was, I was asked a very interesting question before going for my last surgery about who, who's David Smith. And I responded, well, he's an athlete. And, <laughs> and the psychologist I was working with went, no, no, you're not. You need, you need to find out who you are. And I think for many, many years, I just identified with being an athlete. And here's the paradox of that is that me identifying as an athlete and being almost obsessed with sport actually got me through all of the surgeries, all of the rehabilitation, because I ultimately had this goal and I was holding on to this identity. But also that's an unhealthy relationship because mm. so often we identify with what we do, not who we are. Right. And I think that the real key in life is that one of the key traits, I guess, to resilience is, is having a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think to have, know your philosophy is key. And I didn't really know my philosophy. I just identified with being an athlete and sport was something I had to do. I had to do this sport. I had to go and win medals. And actually what I realized was that, that you, you need to want to do it. Yeah. And it needs to be a want goal rather than a half goal. So So when did that obsession first begin? Yeah, that, that obsession first began when I was I think it began when I was probably about eight, mm -hmm. seven or eight. I, I seen a I, I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland, which is a long way away from here. <laughs> and uh, I grew up at the right at the foot of a mountain, a ski mountain. So my, my dad and mum would take me skiing from a very young age. And I remember the, there was a poster one day in the local village advertising a karate club. And I remember like pulling at my mum as, as an eight-year-old, seven-year-old would do, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. Eventually to get peace, I think, she took me along to this karate club and, and I just fell in love with karate. I, I, and at that point I fell in love with lots of sports. We, I did a sport called shinty, which is like, like hockey. It's a Scottish version of hockey. It's probably the best description to, to non-Scottish people. Yeah. Uh, I skied, I water skied, I windsurfed, uh, I ran in the mountains. Basically, if it, if it evolved using my body, I, I did it. I wasn't uh, massively motiva motivated academically as a kid. Yeah. Uh, so I think the best track was was to to use the power of sport. And I think that's the great thing Nelson Mandela said once that you know sport has the, the ability to pull people together, bring people together. and. Ultimately, I, I think it was an unconscious decision of my mum's. She probably didn't realise that Nelson Mandela had said that, but yeah. she just thought, I think, okay, to keep my kid focused and out of trouble, I'll, I'll take them to sport. So I read your Wikipedia page, and it said that you were born with a disability mm -hmm. and a club foot, yes, and yeah. you had many surgeries when you were young yeah. around it. Was that right? Yeah, well, yeah, obviously everything online is not always true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yes, I, I, was, so I, I was born with a, a condition called talapisis, which is, is club foot. And uh, I, I didn't have surgeries because the, the doctor, thankfully, I was under, they, they did an error procedure, which was almost because the bones are so easily moved at that time. It was like a manipulation. So they constantly, basically man manually move okay. my foot. That and sounds then painful. I, it, it was a pretty horrendous experience. <laughs> yeah. uh, and what they did is they put me in special plaster casts and boots. So often when I'm speaking to, to, to people, I liken it to the movie Forrest Gump, they had those boots on. Right. So anyone that's seen that movie, that's kind of what I had on. And yeah, it was, it was a huge trauma to go through as a, as a, as a baby. Uh, and I think, you know, once you're, now that I'm aware of, I guess, the neuroscience of the mind, that we're, we're being programmed from the age of 
almost before we're yes. born right through to the age of seven or eight and then those those programs start to get reinforced through our teenage years so if i look at that time frame in my life i had a lot of trauma yeah um as, as a baby i had the, the tumor was potentially already grown at that age really um so i had the issues with my feet I also had three or four convulsions where I almost died in my sleep. Wow. Where I stopped breathing and represented what looked like an epileptic seizure, but it wasn't epilepsy. Uh, I was misdiagnosed with epilepsy. I was put on Tegretol medication for 10, 12 years, uh, which also has a, a, a massive impact on your, on your psychological development. And, and it could have been the tumor. No one will ever know, but when I lay down to sleep, there's a chance that the tumor pressed on the, ne the nerve root to the lungs and it caused me to stop breathing, which went into seizure. Okay. So actually, I, I always think sometimes I'm like a cat that I'm going through my nine lives and I think yeah. I've used about seven of them. So the, yeah, those early years were, were pretty traumatic with the yes. foot and also with the convulsions. Right. So did that inform your obsession with becoming an athlete? because I'm already seeing this mindset that you had that you will move past this and becoming an athlete kind of proves that whatever happened in your childhood, you could overcome that and compete yeah. at the highest levels in sport. Yeah. Is I, that I, right? Well, it's interesting because I think I came from a place that I believed I wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. And that, that creates almost somebody who becomes a perfectionist or someone who becomes this either people pleaser or perfectionist or this driven person. And, and the reason I come from a place like that, it was when after all these medical problems and I, I moved to where we're living in the Highlands of Scotland, I wasn't great academically. I, I had a lot of people say to me, oh, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. You'll never achieve this. You'll never achieve that. You'll never do this. You'll never achieve this. And the more I was told that, the more I threw myself into sport. Yeah. So sport become almost an unhealthy relationship. Mm. If my house was a little bit of a hostile environment, I would go and run 10 miles. Okay. So I didn't want to be an athlete. Yeah. Uh, initially, I wanted to go to the Air Force and the obsession with sport wasn't about winning medals. It was almost, it was almost my safety place. Right. It's where I went to that I could just push my body as hard as I could to prove to myself that I was good enough, that I was enough. Because I think in life, as humans, there's so many of it. We just, we just want to be accepted by our by our tribe, our troop, or our friends, or in society. We, we try to fit in with, with, with so many of what society tells us we should be. But ultimately, if, if you're told through your whole programming years that you're not good enough, right. then for the, the rest of your life, your subconscious program is that, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And, and, mm. and in that, you automatically, I guess, that you can either self-sabotage or you can then push yourself to, to almost to prove, well, actually I am good enough. And then really, who are you proving it to? Are you trying to get others reinforcement or is it for yourself? Yeah. And you know, the ego is a very powerful thing. I think early on in my sporting career, I was probably seeking reinforcement from others. Yeah. And the journey I've gone through with the, the tumors and, and sort of fighting for my life, I now feel that actually I'm not really seeking or searching anymore. I, I'm pretty happy where I am and actually for me now, being an athlete is a very selfish pursuit. Mm. I actually want to help others now. So I've kind of gone from the selfish pursuit of being a sportsman of winning medals where it's all about me to actually thinking, well, I actually want to see other people win medals, which is more of a, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a much more rewarding 
opportunity and that's right. also one of the reasons I'm, I'm in Jamaica is to, to try and help them create a Paralympic cycling team which is fantastic which is a, a first that's never been done so well I want to dig into that mm -hmm. but before we get there you now were started to train for the Olympics mm -hmm. right so this was in the 2000s yeah you were what a roller at well, the no, time? You've so done so I, many. I, no, so I, I did. I did a. I did a, a long stint on the British karate team. Yeah. Uh, as an able-bodied athlete, that led to athletics. Uh, I ran track, four hundred meters. But uh, the problem is, I had the problem with the foot, problem with the tumor. So all these problems underlined, I, I, I wasn't aware of. So I was constantly injured, constantly oh. battling injuries. Um, but I never gave up. I, I certainly have a value of persistence, uh, which I think most athletes who eventually make it to the yes. top are, are gifted with persistence and from athletics i did a very very short time uh, pushing up obviously on the british team mm. and then that led to rowing so i think my i often i often liken my sporting career really properly starting when i when i became a rower and that was in 2009. right and you were training for the olympics for london yes for london yeah, olympics yeah, in yeah, 2009 yeah. as part of the british rowing team yes yeah and then you got your diagnosis in 2010. yeah and so what that shift that happened mentally when you got your diagnosis, you were preparing for the Olympics and then you got this medical diagnosis. So what happened after that? Because you ended up going on to the Paralympics and winning yeah, a gold medal. Yeah. So how did that happen? So I think if I, if I rewind my life back to 2009, I was very much human doing yeah. rather, rather than human being. Oh, and, I love that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was do 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 do. Yeah. Must win, must win. Have to win, need to win, for all these crazy things. And it's funny because you, as an athlete, you think you're going to get this gold medal and you're going to be happy. <laughs> but all I need to do is win this gold medal, then life's going to be great. Yeah. And actually, it presented some other challenges, new challenges, and also I found that when I actually won the medal, that I was no happier with the medal or without the medal. Mm. And actually, really, to for me to be happy, I needed to be, I needed to do my mental housekeeping. I yeah. needed to sort my brain out, sort my mind out and actually be happy with who I am internally. So that, that journey, I guess for me, really started with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And it's a real shame as humans, we, we almost wait until something major yeah. happens for us to actually go, wow. Uh, so when I was diagnosed, it was a massive, sort of it was like a truck coming from the side and hitting me and it completely derailed everything yeah and i remember the day the the, the, the neurologist sat and he held up a, an x-ray and he said look this is a tumor in your spinal cord uh, you need to you need to have this taken out if not you're you're going to die or you might be come paralyzed from the neck down and, and this was a cancerous tumor. no it's a benign tumor okay. it's a benign tumor but it it, it can take on the I guess the modalities of a cancerous tumor, okay. so it can, it, it can become cancerous. And at that point, because I was so human doing, mm -hmm. I basically left that appointment and went straight to training. Wow. Um, and that could be a, a coping mechanism, yeah. it could be part of a, a denial process, but certainly I was very much, I've got a games in two years time, I've got a world championships coming up this year, I don't have time to, to have this tumor. And then the reality started to hit. And then before I knew it, I was then in front of a neurosurgeon telling me he was going to cut the front of my neck open here. He was going to remove, cut through the, the through the vertebrae and then go into the spinal cord. And then when you go into the spinal cord, wow. then there's the huge, there's huge risks. 
at that point, I had no idea. I was completely ignorant to what he was saying. I, I guess I was just so focused on trying to make it to the games and have this sporting career and this human doing mode, not not human being. And I think that you know, as humans, we we're very guilty of not, never stopping. It's go yeah. go 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 go. Yeah. And and I think in this instance, this is a time where you really have to stop and you have to breathe and focus on your breathing and be very present in the moment. So let me just ask you here. So you were preparing for the able-bodied Olympics. No, no, this was the Paralympics. You were preparing yeah. for the Paralympics in rowing. Yeah. So when did you switch from preparing for the able-bodied to the Paralympics? Yeah, that was, it was around about 2009 as well. I was doing some work with a physiotherapist and she actually said to me, you classify because of your foot. Okay. So the, the real crazy thing was if, if if I hadn't had the complications and the trauma as a baby with the foot, I would not be sent speaking to you today because I would have probably died because no one would have found the tumor. It was the shift from Olympic sport to Paralympic sport where the surgeon, where the, the, the medical team and GB Rowan found the tumor. So let me just mm -hmm. get this exactly yeah. straight. So you were preparing for able-bodied Olympics yeah. as a rower. No, no, no. As a, I was doing athletics. As athletics. A, athletics. And, and you a, were and running 400 meters. Yeah, and a bobsledder. And a bobsledder. Yeah. So 400 meters and bobsled, yeah. you were doing... That's able-bodied, yeah. Olympics. And then you went to a physiotherapist and they said, because of the issues with your foot from when you were a child, you qualify for the Paralympics. Yeah. And then, so you started thinking you wanted to do Paralympics or you didn't want to do Paralympics. Yeah, I was, I was you know, I, I often... I think, you know, the mind's like a parachute. Yes. If it's open, it works. Yes. And um, I've always had a very open mind yeah. and I've always been very skeptical to opportunities and chances. So I just seen it, I just seen it as an opportunity. And I think one thing that so many people do in life is they're, they're constantly searching for, for new lands, new places. They think, okay, if I, if I find something, I'm going to, this is going to be happy. And I think sometimes all we need to do is just look through a different lens. Yeah. And this was a prime example of my life where I just had to reframe the situation I was in to look through a new lens and see the opportunity. Okay, because not a lot of people would do that, right? A lot yeah. of people would say, no, I'm good enough to be in the able-bodied Olympics, so why would I consider the Paralympics? Yeah. But there was something special about you that made you open to considering the Paralympics. What was that thing? Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Wow, okay. So, um... I, I guess, you know, it, I think up until that point, it's, I think anyone would have made that decision if they had my DNA, you know, it's everything you've gone through yeah. in your life. It's all the, the hardships, the, the great emotions, every memory, your beliefs, everything that you are as a person. Yeah. So I think that as human beings, it's very easy to come from a place of judgment. Right. And ultimately we want to come from a place of compassion. Yeah. And it's amazing when you change those two thought processes. Mm -hmm. So if you're constantly judging people and judging yourself, then you're probably less likely to make that decision because you're going to be thinking, well, what people are going to think about me? What What's that right. perception going yes. to be? You know, yeah. and it's like I'm saying, well, I have a disability and, yeah. and I'm making this shift where actually if you, if you look through a lens of compassion, then you think, well, actually this is going to be a challenge. It's an opportunity. And for me... Mm. Going to Paralympic sports saved my life. I think. Right. Yeah, so exactly. Saved my life. So that mental shift to saying, "Oh, okay, let me go after the Paralympics," was what saved your life. But you switched from 
400 meters and bobsled to rowing in yeah. the Paralympics. Yeah. And in doing the scans, preparing for that, that's when you found the tumor first. Um, yeah, so when I when I went over to rowing, I actually won, I won a world title. Um, and it was not long after that, I started to have a lot of issues. I, I was having issues my whole life, but because now I was in a system that's so heavily supported with physios, yes. doctors, psychologists, they start to question why, why, why are you not performing? And mm -hmm. initially they thought I was out drinking most evenings mm -hmm. and then they put a, a sleep monitor on me and found I wasn't getting any sleep. So then that led to another question, why are you not sleeping? And then, so they went through a, a tremendous amount of uh, tests and, and research and eventually it led to having an MRI scan. Wow. So you glossed over this part mm. of becoming a world champion yeah. in Paralympics mm. rowing, but I just want to deep dive into that before we come to the present day, which is you switched from Olympics to Paralympics. You switched from sports, from what you were doing before, into rowing, and you went so hard that you ended up becoming a gold medalist. So what was that feeling like? What? How did it... What was that experience like going to the very top of a sport that you just started? Yeah, <laughs> so it's really interesting. I think if you'd asked me that question back then, I'd have been like, oh, it was amazing to be a world champion. Yeah. It's what every athlete strives for. And I, I, I'm not going to take anything away from being a world champion. Yeah. It's, it's a very proud moment. But I think where everything I've gone through in my life in the last decade with the tumors and the surgeries, it's... Um, those things don't mean so much to me now mm -hmm. because ultimately they're they're just this there's like an external substance mm. and like a drug it's like a drug yeah. and you do get an incredible feeling so the morning after you've won a world <laughs> title you wake up and you're like wow it's like a relief all this weight has been lifted off of you because you've set a goal that's almost so unachievable and it takes a tremendous amount of, of self sacrifice well not I hate the word sacrifice, it takes a, a tremendous amount of commitment. Yeah. And also and, and being selfish. Yeah. And you're so focused on it. When it actually happens, you're just like, oh thank, thank, thank God. God that's <laughs> and and you say to yourself, I don't really ever want to do that again. <laughs> and then after that sort of euphoria wears off, you're like I need to feel that again. So it's very much like a drug. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where you have to have a very healthy relationship with it. And that's where I'm a big believer in commitment over motivation because it's easy to motivate people with external factors. We'll pay you more money. We'll give you a medal. Give you, give you a medal. Um, but if, you re if you're really committed, right. then you can take that into other parts of your life. And I think now the world titles and the London medals and gold medals and that, they don't really mean much to me because my athletic career has been probably defined more by how many tumors I've had, yeah. not how many medals I've got. So I've kind of changed my relationship with my sport and career. And ultimately I had to ask myself, what is success? And a lot of people will see success as a gold medal. Yeah. But ultimately as human beings, if we're committed and we have our philosophy and our values, then all we can do is our best. And that is success for you now. And that is success. And just making the start line, as long as I, I get up every morning, I look in the mirror and I say to myself, okay, if this was the last day I was going to be alive, what would I want to do? How do I want to leave the world? And at the end of the day, when I write my gratitude journal, I always say, okay, did I make, did I contribute to making the world a better place today? So I want to understand how you became mentally that person coming from this euphoria of winning the gold medal and then getting hit with your first couple surgeries 
and then going back into another sport, getting hit with another surgery. What mentally, like how do you keep going? How do you not give up and just get so dark and like clearly this path isn't meant for me because this keeps happening. How did that thought process not happen to you? Yeah, so again, it's like, I guess the paradox of the whole tumor was that actually a friend of mine when I was first diagnosed and I was, I was speaking about it, uh, she said that, you know, you need to see this as a gift. Yeah. So I, I basically reframed it. It's happening. <laughs> what is, is it, it's happening. Right. There's, I can't change the circumstance. I can only change how I react to it. And I really, I started to think, well, I could spend the rest of my life in a place of, of the, the, a lot of the psychologists call it disease. So you're, yes. in a, you're in a place of not ease. So yeah. you're, you're constantly fighting, you're constantly in pain, you're, you're not happy, you're, you're just struggling. And every morning you wake up, you have a choice. Do you want to live your life in a, in a place of dis-ease coming with anxiety, anger, frustration, jealousy, all these things? Why me? And looking at other people and thinking, oh, you know, God, I wanted their life. Mm -hmm. That ain't going to change your situation. Yeah. So you have to wake up in a place of joyful gratitude, compassion, loving, and say and, and be happy with it you have to you have to say you know what this 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 is but what it is hard david that is very mm -hmm. hard to do yeah so how did you do that did you listen to podcasts did you read books like how yeah did so you do that i guess i did it the hard way so i wouldn't advise this to anyone i spent a lot of time in icu um yeah. so i i basically seen the end of life mm -hmm. so you know all the time i've spent in hospital you know, I, I, I hate the word failure. It's, it's a, I like to see it as a learning experience. So every time I trained, I got diagnosed, I had surgery, I would then spend a tremendous amount of time in, in hospital. And I would see people take their last breath. I would see people give up. I'd see real strong characters just give up and not leave the bed, not want to do their rehab, not want to get better, just basically say, you know what, I'm, I'm checking out of life. Yeah. So I, I used to watch all this happening and then it really put a lot of things into perception from perspective for me because I thought, well, okay, what is this success? What is this, you know, why am I doing things? I need to do them because I love to do them. So yeah, I love to do sport. I love to train. I love to move my body. I love to challenge myself to see how far I can push it. But then it became a bit more of a spiritual journey. Yeah. And I think that was because I've seen people take that life. I've seen the end of life. So what that did to me in, in that essence was that I thought, wow, it's to see that last breath. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, it's, you've really, you only get one chance at this life yeah. and we're only here once. So why do something you're not happy with? It's like you leaving, you, you, you made that conscious decision. If yeah. you'd stayed in America, you weren't going to be happy. Okay. You might've had all the money and, and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, this is all external stuff. Yeah. And when you're on your deathbed, the only thing you have is memories. You, it doesn't matter if you have a penthouse apartment in New York when you're on your deathbed. Right. And at that point, you think to yourself, wow, I need to make experiences. So there was a, there was a great study done at, at Yale about the search of happiness. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the, the undergrads were like, oh yeah, I need a good job, I need good grades, I need this, I need that. And actually the professor was like, no, actually, 
making experiences, savoring the moment, gratitude, acts of kindness. These are things that will truly make you happy. And I think for me, when I seen this, these people dying, yeah. and these people giving up, for me, that was a massive shift in my mindset. And I started to ask why I was doing things. Why, you know, why am I alive? What's my purpose? Right. What's my philosophy? So when I started to ask those questions, ultimately, you start to read. You saw all these people dying, take their last breath. It made you question your own purpose and what do you want to do before you get to that place. So what was the answer to that? What is your purpose nowadays? So I think the, the one thing I really started to understand is that, that no one likes to talk about death. But it really freaks people out. Yeah. And I always say to people, if you, there's one sure thing in life is that we're all going to die, yeah. unfortunately. Um, if you knew the day you were going to die, would you choose to live today differently? Mm -hmm. And the answer is absolutely yes, mm -hmm. because most of us go through, again, like I say, looking in the mirror of the car, not looking where we're going. We're either forecasting to the future or living in our history and we're not really living in the now. Yeah. So when people ask me my philosophy, it's very much to live in the now. And I have to do that because of diagnoses. I don't know what's going to happen in three months time at my next scan. So I very much choose to try and live where my feet are, live in the now, be passionate about just doing the best I can do today and then tomorrow will take care of itself because we don't really own tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Now that might freak a lot of people out because a lot of people have to plan and have strategies for stuff which I completely, um, I'm completely compassionate about and understand. So I still want to be an athlete, I still want to train, but one of my real philosophies now is, is obviously trying to make change to other people's lives. Right. And that's one of the reasons I'm in Jamaica is to, uh, there's a, an athlete in Jamaica who, who's a cyclist, he's a paracyclist, and I, I want to help the Jamaican Cycling Federation help this guy mm. to, to give him the opportunities of living his dream, living his yeah. philosophy. And it was, it was a really rewarding, I, I, it was really interesting. I had almost feel that I would get more out of seeing him win a medal yeah. <laughs> than me going to another games and winning a medal. And I think that for me is, is a big change. Because now you've become a coach, right? Yeah. As a coach myself, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? That is what gives me the most joy, seeing people that follow a framework that I put together and get amazing results in their own life. Exactly. It just, it's so much more fulfilling yeah. than things that I've done before. Because it is an act of kindness. Yeah. And the more I read and the more I studied online, the more I realized is that if, if we can help other people, Mm -hmm. then we're ultimately changing the world and making it a better place. Yeah. And who, who doesn't, no one wants to live in a world full of anxious, frustrated, angry people. We want to live in a world where people are compassionate, they're joyful, and ultimately living with gratitude. And I think the one thing I've learned from, I guess, fighting for my life is that, that that's a pretty important thing and it's something I'm very passionate about. And I want to share what I've gone through not so much in the world of sport, but more in the world of hospital and ICU and, and tumors and, and the, you know, yeah, okay, I, I'm smiling and happy at the moment, but there's been some really dark times, yeah. really dark times when you're very alone in a, in a room and you're in tears and you're crying. So it's not all positivity. Yeah. And I think that's one thing when you're, when you're diagnosed with a tumor or cancer, a lot of people would say to you, oh, just be positive. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all, yeah. that's almost the worst thing you can say right. to someone because you need to be realistic. Mm -hmm. And yes, okay, there's a, in psychology, there's a negative bias. So the human mind almost wants to pull you to negative thinking. Yes. And I think the more we become self-aware, the more we can catch these thoughts. And if we can catch them and we say, right, what's our coping mechanisms? How am I going to replace the negative one with some positive affirmation, positive thinking? 
and and that works and i think for me that i want to share that with people to say okay i'm not just going to tell you to oh, think positive and everything will be all right mm-hmm. you know people are dealing with with real life stuff yeah. uh but ultimately these are just these are just circumstances and i try to say to people well, let's create beliefs rather than being reactive let's create things and this mindset is helping me navigate something that's, that's pretty major it's trying to take my life yes. uh, so I sort of feel with okay if I if I can manage this and deal with this with a certain amount of resilience and perspective uh, and stay in a, in a happy joyful place then this stuff actually really works yeah and a lot of people kind of laugh at positive psychology and think oh it's a bit airy fairy but it was one of the most popular courses at Harvard when they run it there mm-hmm. and there's you know Yale do a lot of good work in positive psychology so it, it's something that, that I'm very passionate about and I think taking that into the world and just really just trying to make it a better place is probably the philosophy I live by now and ultimately yeah live where your feet are Fantastic. So how can all our Soul Career audience follow your story, see where you go from here, get in touch with you? I know you write for a Scottish newspaper. So where can we find you? Yeah, so because my philosophy is about living in the present, living the moment, I'm not very good on social media. I I try to live my life in in the real world. Uh, I I, I do have an Instagram, but I'm very reluctant to use it. (laughs) I do write for the, the Scottish Herald, so if you actually just put David Smith Cyclist mm-hmm. into the Google, my website will come up, there's there's videos, there's a documentary, um, and, yeah, and, I, and I write for a Scottish newspaper, so there's links on Google that, that take you to the Scottish uh, column that I write every week, and it's just my, I guess it's my, uh, the, the, the world through my lens that I see so um yeah and we're so lucky that we got to have you here on our podcast as well I know David because one of my very good friends Angela is his fiance <laughs> so I had to grab him while he was Jamaica in Jamaica and get him to tell his story on the podcast so thank you so much David this was incredible your story is incredible it's so inspiring to think about what you've gone through and what you've overcome and thank you so much for sharing it. oh thank you for having me on thank you very much if you love this episode remember to hit subscribe and leave us a review and if you're a professional executive or entrepreneur that's interested in taking one of our coaching programs head on over to soulcareer.com and sign up for a free consultation We'd love to hear from you.